Morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Hey, all summer long, we've been teaching verse by verse through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Joshua is the story of how God brought his people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River and into the promised land, the land that he promised to their ancestor, Abraham, a centuries before. However, in order for the Israelites to actually inhabit the promised land, uh, they needed to first conquer the people who lived there, the Canaanites, in battle. And so the book of Joshua, therefore, has a lot of, of violence and war. And Joshua is different um, from even the other books in the Old Testament that contain violence. Uh, books like uh, Judges, or First and Second Samuel, or First and Second Kings, because so much of the violence in those books are merely accounts of the Israelites defending themselves in war. But here in Joshua, it looks like God is indeed the commander and chief behind the violence. He, after all, was the one who told them to go in and conquer the Canaanites. And so lots of times if you hear people object and they say, why is the Old Testament so violent? Actually, what they're really specifically asking is why is the book of Joshua so violent? And so we wanna look at that question this morning because this is a church that invites hard questions. You know, it says right out in the lobby that we believe the Bible is the lamp of truth in darkness. And so the Bible is God's word. And if we believe that it's true, then we should be able to ask hard questions of it. And we want to do that. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. So here's our question at hand. It is, why is the book of Joshua so violent? So for instance, if you're new here, let's say it's your first time, for some of you it is, or maybe you just got here last week, let me just give you a sample of kind of what some of the parts that we've read even this summer that maybe caused people to go, whoa, what is that? So for instance, when the Israelites were conquering Jericho, here's a verse that we read, Joshua 6, 20. And by the way, today, we're kind of doing a bit more of systematic theology, it's called, rather than going through a specific passage, we're answering a specific question about the Bible. So most of what we're going to have, we'll just throw on the screen for you, because we're going to have to jump around a little bit. So Joshua 6, 20-21 says this, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now, they usually leave that part out in the children's Bible, right, when we get to the Battle of Jericho. But a number of times throughout Joshua, we see the Lord telling them to go in, drive out, and destroy the Canaanites. Why? Why would a good God ask them to do that? Why the violence? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you six reasons why we have this existence of violence in the book of Joshua. Now, due to the culture and the time period that you are currently listening to this message, this first one of the six may not be the easiest one to hear, but we have to start here. The first reason is this. Number one, the justice of God has finally come on the Canaanites. Now, if we're going to look at this sort of touchy subject here, one of the first things we need to do is take off our cultural lenses. Actually, we talk about this in Renovation U. Many of you learned this this summer, actually, in studying God's Word. Uh, most of us, actually, without ever even recognizing, we read the Bible through our lens of culture. That is how our culture looks at life. So think of it this way. Uh, let me take these glasses here. Now, I want you to imagine that if anyone in the world were to put on these glasses, they would immediately think like a 21st century American, as soon as they put them on. 
Now the truth is, when you read the Bible, you read through these glasses. Because, well, you're a modern day American. And this is the view through which you see the world. Now people have always read the Bible through their unique cultural lenses, right? Back in the day, there were people who read the Bible like a fourth century African, right? Because that was their culture. Of course, others read it like a 19th century Asian because that was the culture through which they began to engage in the Bible. Even think of our missionaries that we were just talking about, right? And so when they witness, when they share the Bible with people and people begin to read it, they read it through the lens of being a 21st century Eastern European. We all bring our own cultural assumptions, our preferences, our presuppositions to the scripture. And as much as we can, what we want to do when you read the Bible is you want to take your cultural glasses off. Because the problem is, if you study the book of Joshua and you're always thinking like a 21st century American while you're reading it, well then it's pretty easy to come up with some objections. Because one of the things that we love as Americans, you know what we really love? Love. (laughs) We love love. You know what we don't like to talk about? Sin. (laughs) Judgment. Justice. That's our culture. Now, that's not every culture, but that's our culture. And if you read it always through this, well, then it's easy to come up with a number of objections. So what we want to do is we want to take off our cultural glasses as much as we can, right? And then if we're going to answer this question of why is the book of Joshua so violent, if we're going to answer it fairly, then we need to look at what it actually says. And one of the things that it tells us and that the whole Bible tells us is that God is the judge, And not only is he the judge, he is a just judge. He's a good judge. And just like judges on earth, judges dole out consequences for laws that are broken, for sin that has happened. And God is a just judge that gives consequences. And that makes sense when you really stop to think about it, right? If God was a God that simply looked upon the great evils of this world and did absolutely nothing, that is, he never brought justice, Seriously, you could not respect him. You would not want to worship him as God. And so at times, God does bring his justice upon us even while his humans live on earth. And the other thing I think we want to be careful here of when we, as we begin this subject today is we don't want to just dismiss God for bringing justice on the Canaanites. You need to know that the Canaanites, those are the people who lived in the promised land. It was also called the land of Canaan, thus the Canaanites. The Canaanites are not like this sweet old grandma that lives next door to you, okay? In fact, God tells the Israelites in Leviticus 18 that the Canaanites are so evil, they're so depraved, that they were currently engaging in all sorts of deviant sexual sin in the land. And he actually lists it off, and it's things like incest, bestiality, child abuse, child sacrifice, temple prostitution, and there are other historical documents that actually say the exact same thing about these Canaanites. And on top of that, they were barbaric and they were cruel. And so the justice of God is going to come upon the Canaanites for their outrageous sin. And by the way, God is not being a partial or selective in bringing his justice here. He's not punishing the Canaanites just because they're the Canaanites. In fact, 800 years after this, God is going to temporarily drive out the Israelites from the land because they were engaging in a gross amount of sin. Also, one of the things that we teach really often here is that God's justice and his forgiveness, that they always go together. And so we want to remember here that it is not God's desire to destroy the Canaanites. 
he would of course prefer that they turn from their sin and they worship him. And we see examples of this even in the book of Joshua. The book of Rahab, not the book of, the, the person of Rahab is a great example of this, right? Rahab actually says in Joshua chapter two that we heard about you, we heard about your God. And she turns to him and she repents and she's saved. Right, but few others take God up on that opportunity, even though it's there. The Bible says that the foreigners can turn to him and they can be saved. Uh, the Gibeonites from Joshua chapter nine are another example of this. In fact, you keep reading the Old Testament and a number of the Gibeonites actually become devout followers of the Lord. And so not only was there a way out for them, we also read when we read the whole of the Old Testament that God was unbelievably patient in bringing his justice. So. If you go back in time and you go over 400 years before this, you see God make this original promise to their ancestor Abraham. And he says something really interesting. So I want to go to the book of Genesis now. In Genesis chapter 15, God says this to Abraham. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. So he's, he's telling him about Egypt now. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there but I will punish that nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites. Uh, The Amorites is just like the people who lived in the southern part of the promised land. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So what God is saying here is actually remarkable. He's saying that the Amorites or the Canaanites are already sinful in the time of Abraham and deserving of judgment, but God's patience for them has not run out. In fact, God is gonna give them more than 400 years. That's a long time, by the way. 400, how old's America? Not 400, right? 400 years to get it together. He patiently waits upon them. But after a half a millennium of child abuse, incest, brutality, child sacrifice, their sin has now reached its full measure, the Bible says, and justice has come. And so we wanna be really careful here at the outset because a lot of our objections, they come from our culture. And we wanna be really careful before we accuse God with our unique 21st century American mindset through our glasses. We need to remember that there are plenty of other cultures around the world, even right now, that are reading the book of Joshua this morning through their glasses, right? And I think particularly this morning of those right now that are living under oppressive and wicked regimes. You know what, they're reading the book of Joshua right now, and you know what you're saying? They're saying, no, Americans. The question is not, why is God so violent? The question is, why is God so patient? God, would you bring your justice on the evil of this world? That's what they're praying. That's what they're questioning. And so firstly, when we think about our objections, we have to realize that we're all bringing these objections through the cultural lenses that we're looking through. Does that make sense? So we wanna take those off, and when we take them off, we wanna lean into what does it actually teach us about justice, about judgment, and also about patience and forgiveness. 
Okay, now you may look at that and go, okay, I get, I'm getting it, I'm tracking. But I want to build a case here. I want you to walk out of here this morning, and you don't have to like that there's violence, but I want you to understand, okay, there is solid reasoning for this. I don't need to question my faith or the Bible or anything because of this. So that's reason number one, but we got five more coming. So let's go to the second one here. Second reason we see violence is this. No one is innocent, and we all die. Okay, that sounds super ominous. Uh, and also that sounds like two reasons, so let me show you how they go together. Okay. Part of the reason I think we bristle so much at the violence in the book of Joshua is because we want to, again, as modern day Americans, through these glasses, we want to read the story and we look at the people who died and we want to say, like this is how Americans talk, we want to say, but what about the innocent people? And yet, again, that's a secular American perspective. We take this off and we study God's word And what we see in God's word is that we are all born sinful. This is the Christian doctrine of, called the uh, the doctrine of total depravity. It is that we all sin. Psalm 51 says, surely I was sinful at birth. The book of Romans all throughout, it says, no, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so the Bible says there's actually no such thing as an innocent person. We all have sin. And the Israelites aren't innocent. I think one of the reasons that people misread this passage and start to object to it is they want to read it like, okay, it's the good guys against the bad guys, but that's not what it says. God even explains to the Israelites in Deuteronomy before they enter the promised land that that's not the case. In fact, look at this amazing passage, Deuteronomy chapter nine, verse four. He says this, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, Israelites, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. And then God goes on later to say in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and remember Israelites, you are sinful too. And so no one is innocent and we all die. In fact, since the fall of Adam and Eve on the opening chapters of the Bible, we see that we've all We all are born sinful, and because of that curse of their fall, a result of that is we all die. And in fact, we deserve it. The Bible tells God is the one who gives life and takes it away. And as our creator, he has the right to do that. And again, I feel like we would want to say, God, how how could you take a life? Why would you take their life? What right do you have to do that? And I think it's fair to ask back to that, what right do we have to exist even in the first place? Ever thought of that? It's God's choice. And the truth is, at some point, God takes everyone's life, does he not? We all die. God in his infinite wisdom has ordained a specific time for every single person in this room to die. And whether that's at age 30 or age 90, God is still within his right as your creator to take your life. Now remember, again, biblically, because this all kind of sounds weird to our secular modern mindset, but remember biblically, yes, your body will die, but you as a soul, you don't die, right? Remember, you just transition somewhere else. You're transitioning for eternity, either to hell or to heaven. You are an immortal being. And so, think about this, especially from a Christian perspective. 
Whether God takes you at age 30 or age 90, I promise you that two billion years from now, whether you lived 30 years or 90 years on earth is actually gonna feel completely irrelevant to you. And so again, when we, when we take these cultural glasses off and we see what the Bible teaches both about our lack of innocence and also about the scope of eternity, I think this question is actually significantly less intense. Okay, let's go to a third reason of why we see violence at this particular part of the Bible, the book of Joshua. The third reason is this. If the Canaanite sin is not vanquished, it will spread, especially to the Israelites. I think this is why God has decided now is the time to bring justice upon the Canaanites because he's concerned if Canaanite culture remains, it's gonna spread to his people, the Israelites, and they're gonna engage in these detestable practices and they're gonna begin to worship these false gods. And God warns them of that even. Here's another passage from Deuteronomy before they're going into the land, chapter 12, verse 31. God says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, the way of the Canaanites, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things. The Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire. They were sacrificing their own children to their pagan gods. Remember, this is not grandma next door. Sacrifices to their gods. And so, the conquering of the Canaanites in, in many ways was more about ending their religious and cultural practices than it was about ending the people, the Canaanites. And honestly, in historical truth, the Israelites only completely conquer a select number of cities in Canaan. The rest of the Canaanites are actually just driven out. And the Bible uses that language. I actually read that a few verses ago. They were driven out of the land. Okay, next reason. Let's go a little bit deeper here. So put your thinking cap on if you haven't done so already. It's this. Number four, God knows the future. And here's what I mean by that. God knew, unlike us, God knew exactly what the results would have been like for the future if the Canaanites weren't driven out from the promised land. And who knows what might have happened to, to history, to that region, if the vile wickedness of the Canaanites would have continued to spread in that land. But I think for a lot of us, where we get stuck here when we think about it is, even if you can say, okay, I understand why God would bring judgment on those Canaanite adults, I think one of our main obstacles is we still say, but there were children. We just read that passage from Joshua 6. There were children that were killed in this war. Now, first of all, as I just said, we know that many of the Canaanites fled and they were not killed. This is particularly true of their children because we know that actually in part biblically because the very next book in the Bible, if you keep reading, the book of Judges, those Canaanite children who escaped have now grown up to be adults who come back and kill the Israelites. And we also know uh, from history that many of the places that the Israelites attacked were actually military outposts that either there were not children living there or even if there were, many of the women and children would have fled. Okay, this is just warfare in general. If you study war in history, remember civilians don't just wait around to be killed, right? Like think of the Ukraine war that's happening right now. What happened when Russia began to invade? Hundreds of thousands of people, they did what? They, they fled. Okay, and so we don't have mass amounts of children that are killed here, but certainly some children were killed. I'm not trying to say that it didn't happen. Why? Even if there were 10 of them, why? 
Well, in part, it's because we're keeping the holistic picture of all of the things that we've already talked about. But also, keep in mind that God is outside of time, right? And so, we, we look at a child and we see a child, but God can see all of their hypothetical future and who they would even have grown up to be. Okay, let's continue working kind of on this futuristic line of reasoning. The fifth reason we see violence is because of this. For the future of the world, it was critical that the Jews be preserved in the promised land. Okay, so we see a season of violence when we read the book of Joshua. But we've got to remember that God is playing 4D chess here with history, okay? He has already promised to Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, specifically a subset of them, what we know today as the Jews, God has already made promises that the Messiah is gonna come from that specific bloodline. And so God must, therefore, over this period of 1,400 years from Joshua to Jesus, he has to preserve this group of people, which is actually even more remarkable than you think. Uh, My friend, uh, Pastor Jeremy Lynn, once said to me, he said, one of the main reasons that I believe in the Bible is because the Jews still exist. You know, think about this. How many of you have uh, Hittite friends? Anybody know any Canaanites, Amorites? Parasites, Jebusites in, in your neighborhood over in the lakes over here? No, right? You don't know any. Why? Well, that's because distinct ancient people groups do not last for thousands of years. And for the very, very handful of few that you could maybe think of from around the globe in history, one of the things we know about them is their religious beliefs couldn't be more different 3,000 years later. And yet, here we have this group of people, the Jews, with the same beliefs, still in the same land, now, albeit there was a detour or two. Why? Because God must preserve them as a people. It's actually great evidence for scripture. They're still there because in fact, they're gonna have to factor into the end times. We see that in the book of Revelation. And God most certainly had to preserve them from Joshua to Jesus because they factored in so deeply to the Messiah, Jesus coming. This is a great verse in the New Testament from the book of Galatians I wanna read to you. Galatians chapter four, it says this. But when the set time had fully come. So God picked a time in history when Jesus is going to come. It's an appointed time. God sent his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. That means Jesus was destined to be born a Jew. And then after that it says, to redeem those under the law, so Jesus came first to the Jews, that we, now that's us, the rest of us Gentiles, might become, might receive adoption. So that means all of us are gonna be grafted in now to God's family, to sonship. So what it's saying is, okay, this worldwide Christian faith was destined to come from the Israelites, from the Jews, and from where? The promised land. Have you ever looked at the promised land on a map? Look at this, I wanna show you this. Israel, in many ways, is the center of the world. At least, at minimum, the Eastern Hemisphere. Think about this, there are three continents that come together at Israel. And because the Messiah is meant to come from here, the gospel of Jesus Christ can ring out to Asia, it could ring out to Africa, it could ring out to Europe from that one strategic place. And the good news from that place, because of where it strategically was, has already saved billions, I'm not exaggerating, billions of souls for all of eternity. And so yes, 
God is going to do what is necessary to protect that timeline, to protect that bloodline, and that place because of what it will do for billions of people in the future. Does that make sense? And so, yeah, because of that, there is some battles, there's some war, there's some violence even to protect that future. But I do want to point this out too, and I think this is important, that that season, that sort of book of Joshua season in the Bible is a very unique and even temporary season in biblical history. It's a time when God himself was the king. Now, for those of you that are into civics, you, you wanna think about it this way. The government structure that they're living in in this time in the book of Joshua, it's not a democracy, it's not a republic. Okay, there's no separation of church and state here. It's not even a monarchy. There's no king and queen. It's what in history we call a theocracy. A theocracy is where you have a civil government and it's led by God. And so God in this theocracy is using his people in this unique season of history to carry out his unique plans for the promised land. However, that period of how we as believers relate to God, a theocracy, that period is over, okay, it's no more. And unlike many other faiths even, Christians are not called to use violence to accomplish our aims of building God's kingdom. Quite the contrary, actually. How does Jesus usher in the kingdom of God? Right? Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God not by killing, but by being killed. So it's a totally different season. So why the, why the violence in the book of Joshua? Well, in part because it's this very unique time period with a very unique purpose for the future of the world. Okay, let me give you one more reason. Number six, God's ways are higher. And I don't mean that in a trite way. Let me, let me actually explain what I mean. There'll be many times in your life that you just won't understand what God is doing. And I think that's true both as uh, an individual and even as a society. So think about when tragedies occur in our nation or around the world. Often what we see on the news or what we just see people questioning when we talk with them, we say, okay, where was God? Like, why would God allow September 11th to happen? Where was God in the latest mass shooting? And as a society, we're pretty quick to accuse God for we, what we presume is his inaction. But think about this. What are people saying that they want God to do? Well, they're saying, well, I wanted him to come in and stop it, to stop the evil. Okay, but how would God stop a mass shooting? Okay, there's a couple of options. You could say maybe he would take away the mass shooter's free will. Okay, well, there's some problems with that, right? Okay, you could say maybe he would kill the mass shooter, like end his life early so that that would never happen. Or what about September 11th? Well, God maybe would have to, to take out the life of the terrorists, to kill them before they ever got to the airport. But see, God didn't do that in those situations, and so people accuse God of being immoral for not stepping in. But think about this. When God does step in, like taking out one of the most wicked cultures to ever exist, the Canaanites, we then accuse God of being too violent. You see, this this is where we as humans, before we get to these fast objections about what God should do, this is where we need to come to difficult questions in humility. And at some point, we have to trust that his ways are higher and that he knows better than us. Because his ways, his wisdom is infinitely higher than ours. Like if you're a parent, 
Surely you've made a decision for the benefit of your child before, and you inform them about it, and they look back at you and they said, you're mean. And you were probably thinking, oh, show you mean, right? <laughs> Grounded for life. But what, what do you think? You maybe think this in your head. You, you would think, no, I'm not, I'm not mean. See, if, honey, if you had, you wouldn't say this in a way because I wouldn't understand, right? But you could, in your head, you think, if you had the same information that I have and the same wisdom that I have, then you actually would have made the same decision. And I believe we would too if we knew what God knows. But we don't even know a fraction of it. His ways are higher. Okay, so this certainly is not an easy question, but we want to tackle it, right? And maybe you're here this morning and you're still going, uh, I still got some more questions. One of the things we're going to do after the service today is I'm going to have uh, all, all of our pastors on staff, a number of our Renovation U Bible teachers, they're going to come up front here for after the service. If you have a question, you're going, yeah, but what about this? Or I want to think about this. We welcome questions. And so we, we want to take your questions after the service as well. So be thinking about that if you have a question. At the end of the day, though, I think it does come down to trust. Do we trust that God is good? Do we trust that God knows what he's doing as he sets the timeline of eternity? And I just want to tell you that you can trust that God is good because God has shown his mercy to you. Because the truth is, you know, we can talk about the Canaanites and their sinfulness. The truth is we too are sinful. We're not the good guys and they're the bad guys. We're sinful. And as much as we don't like to talk about it in our American culture, right, we too deserve God's justice. The Bible says it this way in the New Testament. John 3, 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son, as Jesus, has eternal life, live with God forever in heaven, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. In fact, they would spend all of their eternity in hell. For God's wrath, it's like his justice, remains on them. So what that is alluding to is actually the main teaching of Christianity is just putting it in different words. And the main teaching of Christianity is that Jesus Christ came down to earth, God's son, and he died on the cross for you. And if you would believe in that, what it's saying it will do is it would take the wrath, God's rightful justice that is meant for you, off of you and put it on his son, Jesus. But it's saying, if you reject him, if you say, no, I don't believe in that, I want to be the leader of my life, I will decide how I live, what I do, then it says God's wrath actually will remain on you. And why is that? It's because God is the judge, right? And he, justice must be done. So justice is either gonna go on you for your sin or justice is gonna go on Jesus. And that's your choice. And I just beg of you, God loves you. I mean, think about this. He, would see, he sees all of your wickedness, all of your hate, all of your anger, and yet still he would say, I want my son to be punished in your place. That's incredible. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to have eternal life. Eternal life is really twofold. It's that you would experience when you accept him in as your savior and as your leader, When you accept him in, you experience a life like you have never experienced before. And the second part of eternal life is you then spend forever, all of eternity, in heaven with him. But that comes from you accepting him in as your savior and as your leader. In fact, I want to pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you. We thank you that as we dive, first of all, as we dive into your word, 
that there are answers, that we don't have to walk away from it or say we don't believe. There are good answers, and we're so thankful for that, that it's there. As we're kind of in a, a posture of prayer right now, as you just has your eyes closed, I just wanna say to some of you, if you're here and you're going, I need to, to believe in Jesus, to accept him, and not just I know about him, but to truly accept him as my savior and as my leader, to be forgiven, and you need to do that for the first time. Maybe you've been thinking about it this last month, or maybe you've had a crazy week and you're just knowing, I'm here in church today because I need to meet and know who Jesus really is. If that's you, I'm just gonna pray a prayer. And what I want you to do is I want you to just pray along with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but just from your heart, from your mind, pray it like this is you talking. Let's pray. Father, I believe that you love me. I believe that I have messed up, God. You know my sin. And yet I believe as I'm hearing that you sent Jesus to die for me. And God, I thank you that you would forgive me. And now I wanna accept you in, I wanna invite you in as my savior and as the leader of my life. I am giving my life to you, I'm trusting in you. Please come in and lead me. Now as everyone still has their eyes closed, if you, if you prayed that for the first time today, and you're saying, that's what I want. I want to accept him as my leader. I want to be forgiven. If that's you and you prayed it for the first time, would you just, as a way of signaling up to God, it was me. Would you just raise your hand wherever you're at in this room right now and say, yeah, that was me. I needed that for the first time. I want to become his follower. Anyone in this room today where you're going, that's, that's me for the first time. I want to become a follower of Jesus, someone who loves me and forgives me. Anyone here need to make that important, important choice this morning? I'll give you a few more seconds if you do. Okay, you can, you can all open your eyes. I'm not seeing anyone in this particular service, and that's all right. You know, I'll just tell you that this is what we call the gospel. Uh, the gospel just means good news. It's that Jesus does love you and he can forgive you. And if you're still just thinking about that, I want to encourage you to take a Bible with you. They're free for you. And start reading where it tells you to read in the little plan in the front of the book in Matthew. And start investigating this for yourself because it will change your life just as it has changed the lives of so many other people. And so now what we want to do is we want to spend a song here in worship and just thanking and praising the Lord for who he is and what he's done. So let's do that.